welcome to the Skeptic's Guide to Emergency Medicine. Meet him, greet him, treat him, and street him. Today's date is November 19th, 2020, and I'm your skeptical host, Ken Milne. The title of today's podcast is Taking Care of Patients Every Day with PAs and NPs, and our guest skeptic is Dr. Corey Heinz. Corey is an emergency physician in Roanoke, Virginia. He is also the CME editor for Academic Emergency Medicine. Welcome back to the SGEM, Corey. Thanks, Ken. Always good to be on the podcast. Any new announcements, updates, things that you want to tell the SGMers before we get started? Well, I mean, it's the time of the plague, so not much really changes for anybody, right? Um, I don't know if you heard, but we had an election down here. I mean, you know, pretty standard day-to-day routine stuff, nothing really to talk about there. I'm a vampire now. I switched to nights over the past couple months. I'm trying to get a little more more, uh, control over my schedule. Since we get to pick our schedule as night guys, I, I actually really liked it. It does mess with my sleep routine and energy level on days that I'm not working, though. I did five in a row over this past weekend, and then so my body completely flipped. And now that I'm on days for a few days to, you know, have a to be a normal person, I'm definitely feeling the 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 change. As long as being a nocturnist doesn't interfere with your mountain biking. It actually proves it because it gives me more guaranteed daytime hours. Sounds good. All right, well, we've got another podcast to do, so can you give us a case? Uh, Sure, Ken. You are the medical director of a medium-sized urban emergency department. Volumes have increased over the past few years, and you're considering adding an extra shift or two. Your hospital has asked you to consider adding some advanced practice providers instead of physician hours. Advanced practice providers, or APPs, such as nurse practitioners, the NPs, or physician assistants, PAs, are increasingly used to cover staffing needs in the U.S. emergency departments. This is in part driven by economics, as APPs are paid less per hour than physicians. The calculation works if APP productivities are similar enough to physicians to offset differentials in billing rates. However, little data exists comparing productivity, safety, flow, or patient experiences in emergency medicine. The American Academy of Emergency Medicine, a position statement, on what they refer to as non-physician practitioners that was recently updated. The American College of Emergency Physicians, ASAP, has a number of documents discussing APPs in the emergency department, and I'll put a link in the show notes. There has been concern about postgraduate training of NPs and PAs in the ED. A joint statement on the issue was published in September this year by AEM, ASAP, SAEM, as well as others. We'll put the details in the show notes, but we really don't want to get into the politics around the issue. Let's just talk about the data and the science. So, Corey, what's the clinical question? How does the productivity of APPs compare to emergency physicians, and what is its impact on ED operations? And the reference? Pines et al., the impact of APP staffing on emergency department care, productivity, flow, safety, and experience. Academic Emergency Medicine, November 2020. All right, Corey, let's run through the PICO. What was the population? National Emergency Medicine Group in the U.S. that includes 94 EDs in 19 states. And it's not a PICO, it's a PICO because it's an E instead of an I because we have exposure. So what was the exposure? The proportion of total clinician hours staffed by APPs in a 24-hour period at a given ED. And what did they compare it to? Emergency physician staffing. All right, let's go through the outcomes. What was the primary outcome? 
Productivity measures such as patients per hour, RVUs per hour, RVUs per visit, and RVUs per relative salary for an hour. And since we have people listening outside the United States, what is an RVU? Relative value unit. It's a way of equalizing or quantifying the care that you give to a patient based around multiple factors. Thank you. Okay, and what was the safety outcome? Proportion of 72-hour returns and proportion of 72-hour returns resulting in admission. And did they have any other outcomes? ED flow as measured by length of stay, left without completion of treatment. Well, this is an SGEM hot <laughs> off the press, which means we have the lead author on the show. Dr. Jesse Pines is the National Director for Clinical Innovation at U.S. Acute Care Solutions and a professor of emergency medicine at Drexel University. In this role, he focuses on developing and implementing new care models, including telemedicine, alternative payment models, and also leads the USACS opioid programs. Welcome to the SGM, Jesse. Thanks for having me. Well, I know you best from a book you published with my BFF, Chris Carpenter, on diagnostic testing. I hear there's a new edition coming out soon. Absolutely, there is. Uh, our next edition of the book will be published probably mid-2021, uh, so we're actively in the writing phase and excited to uh, get it out as soon as we can. So what's the book about? Share it with the audience. So this is a book uh, that's going into its third edition, focuses on the evidence behind diagnostic testing and clinical decision rules in the emergency department specifically breaking down sort of tricky areas and looking at the evidence. So for example, comparing the 2013 version of the book, which is the last, uh, last time it came out, uh, and, and this version, we're focusing very much on uh, new decision rules, such as the heart score and, and other areas that have really sort of changed practice. Jesse, we're getting a little ahead of ourselves but I'd like to give you an open invitation to come back to the SGEM to do an SGEM Extra book review when your book does get published. I'd be happy to do that. All right, well, let's get back to this study, this hot-off-the-press edition from November Academic Emergency Medicine. What were your conclusions to this study? First off, I'd like to thank my uh, co-authors as well as the funder for this work, which was the uh, Physician Assistant Education Association. So the, our conclusions were, uh, in this group, APPs treated less complex visits, as well as half as many patients per hour compared to physicians. We also found that higher APP coverage allowed physicians to treat higher acuity cases. Interestingly, we did find no economies of scale for APP coverage basically meaning that increasing staffing may not actually uh, lower staffing costs. We also looked at a number of different outcomes that were mentioned earlier by Corey, and we found no observed adverse effects on flow, clinical safety, patient or patient experience uh, as the proportion of APP hours at the day level increased. So really no impact on clinical care delivery uh, in any negative ways that we could find. All right, Jesse, sit back, relax, and you can listen to Corey and I go through a quality checklist and your key results, and then we'll invite you back to talk a little nerdy. You ready to go, Corey? Sure am. 
Okay, these are the checklist questions for observational studies. Did the study address a clearly focused issue? Yes, it did, Ken. Did the authors use an appropriate method to answer their question? A little unsure. Was the cohort recruited in an acceptable way? Yes. Was the exposure accurately measured to minimize bias? Yes, it was. How about the outcome? Was it accurately measured to minimize bias? Uh, yes, I think so. Did Jesse and his co-authors identify all important confounding factors? A little unsure. Was the follow-up complete? Yes. How precise were the results? Uh, they seem fairly precise. Do you believe the results? I do. Do you think that the results can be applied to the local population? Again, I'm going to have to say unsure here. And do the results fit with other available evidence? Well, Ken, this is actually pretty novel information. All right, let's go through the key results. Over a five-year period, there were more than 13 million ED visits at these 94 sites. The majority, like 75%, of the visits were treated by physicians independently. PAs treated about 19% of patients, NPs 5% of patients, and just over 1% of patients were treated with both physicians and an APP. What was the key result, Corey? Physicians were more productive than PAs and NPs. All right, and let's break down some of that productivity. How about patients per hour? So physicians saw about 2.2, PAs and NPs both saw about 1.1. And those RVUs per hour that you mentioned earlier? Physicians generated about 8.5, PAs about 3, and NPs about 3.1. And then the final one, RVUs per visit. For physicians, it was 3.8, and for PAs and NPs, 2.8 and 2.7, respectively. And then they did an analysis looking at what the effect of a 10% increase in APP coverage would have. And what did they find? They found that this would decrease patients per hour by about 0.12 and decrease RVUs per hour by about 0.4. And then the safety and outcomes. They found no significant effect on length of stay, left without treatment being complete, and 72-hour returns. All right, we've gotten to that talk nerdy section, my favorite part. We're going to talk nerdy to Jesse and ask him five questions to help us better understand the study. Corey and I will alternate, and I think, Corey, you've got the first question. So, yeah, the first question was one of surprise. So, Jesse, these results surprised me a little bit, and it's purely due to my own anecdotal personal experience, where APPs see lower acuity patients, often in a fast-track area. I don't know our specific facility's data, but I'd be surprised if they had significantly lower overall patients per hour than the docs. Can you comment on that? Yeah, this was an area that also surprised me, and I've been working with APPs going back more than uh, 15 years at this point. And I think it's a general issue in emergency medicine is you don't really know what others are doing until you actually look. And in, in this case, again, it surprised me that our APPs in the study sites were seeing about half as many patients per hour as the physicians. So again, it, you know, surprised to me having worked with APPs for many years, but that's that's what we found. Yeah, that's interesting. I wonder, you know, if I did go look at our data, what it would look like. We like I said, we have a what we call green zone, which is our fast track area, and I feel like they burn and churn through that. But maybe if you had a duck out there, they'd burn and churn faster. I don't know. 
Certainly possible. So, you know, we have, we use multiple sites and in across the sites, APPs are used differently. So in some of the sites, they're used in triage, some in fast track, some in the main ED. So it's important that this is the average effect across all the sites. Sure. And I think actually that was one of the thinking, one of my thought processes that went into the, have the authors identified all important con, uh, confounding factors was this idea that unless you're separating them out, like you said, it's kind of a conglomeration of a bunch of data. That's right. So, uh, you know, in, in general, the physicians may be working in other parts of the ED, so they may be working at, at, at triage, but but in general, the, the it's going to skew toward, uh, I guess, a, a, probably a little bit of an underestimate of the actual productivity for APPs. Sure. Yeah, I think it highlights a, the general concept of our biases that we can have. And one of the biases is geez, in my personal experience. And until, Corey, like you said, go and actually investigate and find out an unbiased source, how many patients per hour are being seen in your green zone? And does this actually relate back to your personal experience, the results in this study? So I think that's a really important point to make. The second point is about physician satisfaction. Jesse, you looked at productivity and safety. What about physician satisfaction? I know some docs who can't function well without their APPs, and others enjoy working without an APP. I'm one of the physicians that I love working with PAs and NPs. It is a much richer clinical experience for me when I'm working with a colleague and we're providing clinical care together. So did you look into physician satisfaction? So that was an area that I think I agree with you is very important. Personally, I also have the same opinion that I enjoy working with APPs for the many years I've worked with them. Um, I I feel like they do an excellent job and and they make my job easier when I'm working in the emergency department. Unfortunately, in this study, we didn't actually have data on physician satisfaction or physician satisfaction uh, related to APPs. So that's something that we could have looked at if we had the data, but we didn't just didn't have the data. So the third thing is is one of equality in terms of measurements. You mentioned that when making the schedules, one physician hour was equal to two APP hours. For your analysis, it was a little unclear if you calculated your numbers using one to one physician to APP or if you kept the one to two ratio. So we actually ended up doing it both ways. And when we looked at it at the clinician hour level, so what happens when you add more APPs at a two to one ratio? Basically, you get two clinicians for every one physician. So the overall denominator of clinician hours goes up. Uh, so so that, that, that's really what we found was that as APP staffing went up, the number of patient seen per clinician hour went down because the over number overall number of clinician hours went down. However, sure. we also looked at that uh, from the perspective of adjusted. So we, when we looked at it and we adjusted for that staffing ratio, a lot of those findings went away. Okay. That makes sense. Question number four is a follow-up question to my question number two about physician satisfaction. 
And this is about patient satisfaction. You did have an exploratory outcome using a press gainy percentile rank as a measure of patient experience. Now, those outside the U.S. may not be familiar with press gainy, so perhaps you could explain what press gainy is and what did you find? So I would couch this in the very exploratory outcome category. Our group actually did publish a study a few years ago looking at the validity and the reliability of Prescani data and actually really found some limitations in terms of how this data is gathered. Uh, and basically what happens is uh, a certain subset of patients get surveys after they leave the emergency department. Uh, you know, in general, a very small percentage answer those surveys. Uh, some, you know, some EDs, it can be as low as 5% of the sample, some as high as 15%. And then, and then what's, what happens is that data is aggregated for, into an overall score that we aggregated at the month level for this study. So it, was, it, was, it really is sort of a, a, a gross measure of, of overall happiness um, of the a patient population and, and whether or not that correlated with the level of APP staffing. And, you know, again, so in a very exploratory way, we found no effect. I wouldn't, I agree with uh, your assessment. This is not a strong finding, which is why we call it exploratory. So you didn't have the granular detail to dive into it because obviously there are different physicians and different APPs and their personalities and engagement with patients can have a individual impact on a, on a patient's experience, but on a month global basis, you may not have picked out the granularity with regards to APP plus or minus on the shift? Cor that's correct. So our original study from two years ago found that there was really questionable reliability and validity at the clinician level. So our group actually stopped gathering that information, which was limited. This, this second study, uh, so really, you know, but we, we did find that there is some stability to Prescani data if you aggregated at higher levels, like at the facility month level. So that, that was the reason why we used this particular outcome. Since both of you work in the United States and are familiar with the Prescani score, perhaps you could help me and let me know if I got the right perception. But the limited information I know about Prescani and physicians' feeling about Prescani would be on the same level, roughly, as how they feel about their EMR. Yeah, so it's sort of a, a love-hate relationship. <laughs> I think that's a good way to characterize it. <laughs> yeah. um, and because it, it's, it's something that is important and needed to, to either use or assess, but something that, that really has a lot of major limitations. And in, in, in particular, the problem with Prescani data is, n is not really the concept of, is it a good idea to assess patient experience? No one disagrees with that. The bigger issue is because of the way that data is captured, it, it not, it's not really representative of overall patients that you saw, if, if let's say only 5% or 10% of your patients actually responded. So, so that, that's what we saw in that, that prior study is that when you look at the percentile rank at the 
clinician level from month to month, it bounced around like crazy. Uh, so one month you could be in the 10th percentile, next month you'd be in the 90th percentile. So it just really didn't have a lot of uh, reliability. Yeah, one thing to remember, Ken, is that it, my understanding is that the surveys only go out to discharged patients. So you're automatically selecting out the patients who went home, um, or so I should say selecting away the patients who got admitted, which may or may not skew your results in one direction or the other. And then, as Jesse alluded to, the idea that only 5 or 10% of your patients might respond is, as we've seen for in numerous settings where survey responses are, are used, it's the more passionate people who tend to do the responses. So, And are they more passionate about complaining than saying thank you? I think that really depends. I mean, it, it's, it, it just becomes not representative if it's the people who are very happy and very unhappy who are responding is, you know, you sort of end up systematically excluding the average patient um, who, you know, frankly, you know, people are, I think, willing to uh, respond to patient experience surveys. But if, if they're sent a 65 question survey, uh, they get bored pretty quickly and just throw it away. Sure. And like he said, with those big swings in one month, you know, 10 people might have liked what you did and you're doing great. Your medical director comes to you and says, hey, you're doing awesome with the patient experience. And then next month you get a couple people who just you couldn't make them happy no matter what. And your medical director comes and says, what happened this month? So is it used as a quality metric? And is that quality metric tied to pay? Sometimes in some groups in and it, 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 it is in some ways. Yes. And that's the, that's the bigger issue is that, you know, in order to really tie something to pay or to, you know, to incentivize individuals, you need, you need reliable and valid data. And it's, it's just not really there at the clinician level, unless you are able to get a high enough response rate to really be representative so again, for you know, for this particular data, this is exploratory in in its relation to APP um, staffing. You know, no relationship is not a definitive uh, answer, but you know, certainly you know, no big signal there. And one final question on patient satisfaction: Is there a person called Press and Gainey? That is a I good don't. question. I don't uh, know. Yeah, just wondered if it was named after someone. You know. Dr. Press and Dr. Ganey or something. I would assume that somewhere back in the annals of time with when they were just when it was just when it was developed, there were a press and a Ganey. I, I would assume so, but I don't know that that's information that has been passed on. I should have used that as the keener question, but we've got something different. Anyways, you go on to number five, Corey. So let's talk about external validity a little bit. This was a large study with 19 states, 94 sites, and 13 million ED visits. However, it represents one large national group. Do you think the results would apply to smaller groups, Democratic physician-led groups, or more rural sites? This is a really good question, and I think one of the limitations of our study is the, the lack of ability to be able to generalize outside of our group where we have really robust mechanisms to uh, train and monitor APPs and then supervise them in clinical settings. You know, so I've worked across multiple different emergency departments. It varies tremendously in terms of 
the, the resources that are invested in APP education, uh, APP oversight, uh, quality assurance. Our, our group really does take a, a very forward approach to this. And I think that this is one of the reasons why we, we really didn't find quality effects when we looked across a, a, a wide range of uh, emergency departments. So I, I think what we can't conclude from this is that this definitively shows that we would find the same finding elsewhere. Sure. And I think one way you kind of alluded to this at the beginning of your answer, of, of your answer but I think one question that gets at this is how how uniform are your sites in terms of education and and supervision because I, I can totally I can very much imagine that yes you are one large group but you know 94 independent sites may do things 50 different ways that's a great question so uh, so the sites are managed locally uh, and that there are very specific site policies and actually a lot of those site policies which as a researcher I wanted to be able to observe and put it in our in our analyses but we we didn't have access to that. But what we do have is central mechanisms as well as central policies to make sure that APPs, when they do come on, are onboarded appropriately, do have basically the same uh, clinician physician education that physicians do in terms of uh, evidence-based practices, as well as clinical management tools, which is really the, the central piece of this. And, you know, I, you know, worked in academics before I came to a large group US acute care solutions. And there, there's in in the big groups, there's a lot more, at least in our group, there's a lot more standardization in terms of the clinical approach. When I worked in academics, it was, you know, there were, there may have been some local protocols, but it wasn't like there were, uh, there was a very rigid approach, specific clinical management tools that were deployed across a big population. So I, I think that's, that's really the difference uh, is that having a standardized approach specifically to high-risk complaints uh, and that and that, that being integrated into the education in a very forward way is is really what makes the a model like this successful. Well, those were the five nerdy questions we had for you, Jesse, but we did want to give you the opportunity to talk about anything else that you had in your study or something that you would like the SCHMers to know about having advanced practice providers in our clinical environment? There are a couple of additional points uh, I'd like to make. The, the first is that, you know, the, the purpose of us doing this study, the hypothesis was that there really would be some important differences that we would find um, and that the purpose of us looking at it in this way was that we wanted to see whether, you know, is there a level of APP staffing where things really are, you know, where there are some adverse effects. We, we just didn't, didn't find that uh, in this study. Um, so I think the first point is that we, we went in, I, I went into this, you know, as a researcher wanting to find differences, we didn't find differences, but, but also I think it's important to say that, you know, the, particularly when it came to the, the safety outcomes, I, I do agree that, you know, the, there are, the way we measured that was somewhat limited. So I, I don't want to definitively say that this is a safe model. I think that we can conclude that in, in a group that has 
uh, a very forward approach to APP management and education, that there is no, there is no large signal that we found in terms of safety flow or experience outcome or any outcomes. The, the second really interesting finding that I think doesn't necessarily come through unless you're sort of a nerdy researcher is, is this economies of scale really surprised me because the assumption there is that if you add APPs to the mix, that the overall marginal productivity or or the you know that basically that an emergency department will make money by having more uh, more money by having more APPs. We we actually didn't find that you know because of you know ha- having more APPs uh, basically resulted in in the same uh, the same dollar margins um, than than a place that has fewer APPs. So so I think the the perception out there that groups are adding APPs because uh, they're making more money. You know, that was my hypothesis, but we did not find that to be the case. All right, Corey, it's time to comment on the author's conclusions and compare them to the SGEM's conclusions. Well, Ken, we agree with the author's conclusions. So can you give an SGEM bottom line? Increasing APP coverage has minimal effect on ED productivities, flow, and safety outcomes. And how about a case resolution? You continue your discussion with hospital administration with the understanding that APP hours needed to be added in such a way as to utilize their skill sets best, but not as a full replacement for physician hours. You suggest considering a higher number of APP hours to replace one physician hour. And Corey, how are you going to take this information and clinically apply it? APPs can be used to offload lower acuity cases while allowing physicians to care for higher acuity patients. Physicians overall had higher levels of productivity, both as measured by patients per hour and RVUs per hour. And I don't think there's anything to tell the patient because we didn't have a patient in this clinical scenario. So let's just jump forward to the Keener contest. Last week's winner was Dr. Daniel Walker. He's an emergency medicine and critical care registrar working in the UK. Dan knew that the last thing you want to see happen after injecting someone with lidocaine is local anesthetic systemic toxicity. Corey, what's the question this week? What year did the first physician assistant graduate in the U.S.? Oh, and I'll give people a hint. It was the year I was born. So if you know the answer, then send an email to the sgem at gmail.com with Keener in the subject line. The first correct answer will receive a cool skeptical prize. So now it's your turn, SGEMers. What do you think of this episode on APPs? Tweet your comments using the hashtag SGEMHOP. What questions do you have for Jesse and his team? Ask them on the SGEM blog. The best social media feedback will be published in Academic Emergency Medicine. And, and you can get CME credits for this podcast. All you have to do is head over to AEM and click on the website, type in November, and you can complete five questions and get some CME credit for listening to us. And if you have any trouble, yeah, email Corey. Well, thanks, Jesse, for coming on the SGEM and talking about your <laughs> odd off the press publication. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. Uh, next time we see you, Corey, it will be 2021. It has to be better than 2020. We'll see you next time, Ken. <laughs> All right, and to finish the show, Jesse, can you give the SGEM tagline? I'd be happy to, Ken. 
Remember to be skeptical of anything you learn, even if you've heard it on the Skeptic's Guide to Emergency Medicine. Talk to everyone next time. We've